Officials say by next year, the northern region alone may be seeing more than 5,000 cases of COVID-19 per week. That's just the northern region. 90 to 95% of those will be managed in the community potentially, and most people who contract COVID will be able to quarantine at home. So that's a very interesting thing, that interesting development. How will it work? And also the issue of ICU beds has come up again, some calling for more. Um, and yet others are saying there's just not enough nurses to staff them. Should we get more ICU beds or HDU beds, high dependency unit beds? On the line with us is the Health Minister, Andrew Little. Very good afternoon, Minister. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. Yeah, so can we just begin by saying it does seem to be there's a kind of uh, a discrepancy in the numbers between the nurses available to staff the ICU beds. So Rob Bevan is saying basically it takes 5.3 nurses to keep an intensive bed staffed 24-7. So that would put the number of nurses available to do that about 900. You're suggesting there's 1,500 nurses. Why that discrepancy? Um, I'm not quite sure where he gets his numbers from. I think what's important here is for the very small number of um, COVID patients who will wind up in ICU, and that may mean that you know there'll be more people in ICU than would otherwise be the case. Um, the DHBs have been working since last year on how to provide additional capacity. So when we talk about additional beds, ICU and HDU beds, there are the beds that are in the designated ICU wards. Mm-hmm. That's one thing, and, and they're staffed up and resourced. But there are other beds in other parts of hospitals that we can, always, uh, we can also turn to ICU use. In terms of staffing and personnel, um, we won't, you don't just create a whole bunch of fully qualified and trained ICU nurses straight away. But that's why we've been doing this additional kind of modular training to train up enough nurses who will be able to work in an ICU environment under the supervision of the fully trained nurses and the other ICU specialists. This is something that we've got from the UK. And in fact, in the last couple of weeks, a whole bunch of New Zealand ICU specialists were involved in a, 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 basically a, an online conference with their British counterparts to talk through this. And actually what the Brits said was, actually, the, the, the surge-trained nurse is totally adequate under supervision to provide the level of care required for a COVID patient um, as opposed to somebody who's been through, for example, a big car accident and got brain injuries and broken mm. bones and other organs sort of thing. So the Brits were saying to their New Zealand, New Zealand counterparts, the surge-trained nurses are okay to do the COVID kind of monitoring of patients. So that's kind of what we're focused on for the COVID patient. Right. So well, I guess what I, people are concerned about that are texting us is that if these extra nurses are required to staff ICU beds, then there's a number of other patients that are going to be really compromised in their health. What, how do you respond to that? Um, won't, won't be compromised in their health. I mean, the whole way we're planning this is that no one who turns up to a hospital who needs care is going to, is going to not get care. What it might mean is, and depending on the numbers, is that some planned care, so people might expect the hip operations and the knee operations, the planned care stuff, that might have to be deferred, which is what we're doing at the moment. We're doing that in the outbreak in Auckland at the moment, and we did with the outbreaks last year. So that is a reality. Is that then it pushes out the, the kind of the backlogs that we're still kind of grappling with as well. But the idea is that if you if you need hospital level care because of COVID or for that matter any other health thing that you've got, but it's not planned care, then you will get the care you need in a in a New Zealand hospital. I think there's some valid criticism, Minister, saying, you know, you've known about COVID for a year and a half. It's been around the world and it's, it's absolutely slaughtered some countries. So why was the planning not there 12 months ago for this? Um, well, the planning has been in place since last August. So that was the early, early indications of vaccinations came on board 
um, uh, you know, from sort of July last year. <clears throat> um, that's when we were engaged with the kind of the vaccination side of it, the planning about for hospitals to deal with um, surge capacity for ICUs in particular. So, in addition to what we know can be you know, beds that can be turned into ICU level care straight away, there's another couple of hundred beds that we know with a bit of effort and really turning down the other kind of um, care that hospitals give, we can get up to 550 across the whole New Zealand hospital network. So that planning has been done uh, since August last year. The training provided, that additional training provided to those nurses so that they can work in an ICU environment without being a fully qualified ICU nurse, that started last year. So this has been ongoing for some time. The latter part of the planning has been um, as, we've been, as the cam uh, vaccination campaign has rolled out, we've been lifting our vaccination numbers, is then to turn to, right, what happens when we get to the desired level of vaccination and we start to lower the restrictions and open the borders? Mm. We know there's, an on there's going to be an ongoing risk of infection. What do we need to do then? Because actually the big game then is not actually what's happening in the hospitals, it's what's happening in the community, which is what today's discussion has been about. Right. Okay, but can we just clarify how many ICU and HDU beds do we have today? Um, it changes by a small margin each day, but the report I get a report every day on ICU HDU capacity. As of yesterday, it was roughly 320 beds across the New Zealand hospital network can be turned to ICU level care and HDU level care. Okay, and your target is 550. It can be turned to 550. With, now that will require some patients to be discharged, and that, so that'll take a, a few days to kind of get get that turned over, get ventilators in place and um, you know, get, get staff roster, get a roster, staff roster going so that that can be all staffed up. So that will take a bit of time to, to turn up to that level of, of um, capacity. But if, you, if there was a kind of immediate surge now, the total available number of beds for ICU and HDU level care in the New Zealand hospital system would be a, a roughly 320 beds. So you can cope. You're confident it'll cope. Yes. If you have a look at, and if, if it, I mean, the report I get is what is the level of utilisation each day. So right. as of last night, um, the ICU, HDU capacity was roughly two-thirds utilised, so 66%. Mm. In terms of total hospital capacity, so ward beds filled and all the rest of it, it was at about 82, 83%. So we tend to, we tend to hover between 80 and 85% for total hospital beds used, and then um, ICU HDU uh, utilisation tends to hover between about 65 and 70%. Right. Last thing, Minister, and it's a, it's potentially a very good development, but, you know, some of the officials are suggesting maybe 5,000 cases of COVID-19 per week, northern mm. region alone. So yep. your announcement, you're suggesting maybe 90 to 95% of those can potentially, with COVID, be managed uh, with their quarantine at home. Yeah, that, so that's... That Assuming we get to a vaccination level across the board of 90% plus, and um, that's you know, kind of all population groups. So the thing about the vaccination is if, you, if you're unvaccinated and you get COVID, you are likely to get very, very sick. If you are vaccinated and you get COVID, then you won't get uh, so sick and you won't have to go to hospital and you definitely won't have to go to ICU. But you will still need some sort of care. And, and the critical thing is to make sure that because it's a respiratory condition or affects the respiratory system, is to make sure that you're breathing properly, your oxygen levels mm. are being maintained. So how do you monitor that? I, you know, you've talked about this telehealth uh, thing. So is that, and we've got GPs texting us now saying they're not sure how they're going to cope with their general workload and having to offer a telehealth situation or service where they're monitoring people from their home. 
Yeah, so for some GP clinics, look, they will they will be able to, it won't be the doctor necessarily, it might, might be a nurse or a staff member they bring on board. And that, that's the exercise we're going through at the moment, working with GPs and their representatives, is to say, what do you need uh, and, uh, to make this work? Because we need to make sure this happens. And it won't be, won't be every patient treated the same way. We do expect that every every um, patient will get at least a phone, a well-being, a well-check, you know, mm. each day. But that could be... Could be the practice nurse. It could be they could go to a telehealth service and say, "You do it on our behalf." The one, the people we do want to be, um, keep a particular eye on are those with other sort of health issues, and they're the ones we might issue a um, pulse oximeter to. So we're keeping track of their um, heart rate and, and oxygen levels and so on. Because if they do deteriorate, then we, we want to know we can get them to hospital quickly as well. Given, so given we've had a few people abscond from these facilities, Minister, and you know, do various sort of uh, nefarious things, how can you trust that people will do the right thing if they're quarantining at home, and how do they get their meals, just something as pragmatic as that? Yeah, so for, for, for a lot of people, as I say, they will be in their home, there'll be other family members there, and providing their family members who are also vaccinated are wearing the masks and doing the stuff, it, it'll be quite safe and secure. They won't, you'll, you want the patient to be isolating in their room or, or doing whatever, so they can be looked after. There'll be some for whom that won't be possible, so that's why there'll be an assessment about what their needs are. So if meals need to be delivered or food needs to be delivered, we want to make sure that's happening. That's why MSD is going to, as part of the planning that's going in place for all this at the moment. There'll, and there'll be some who, because the houses they live in, the households they live in, there, there are so many people there, actually it'd be better to put them somewhere else where they can recover. And so that's why, particularly um, for a lot of the you know, provincial hospitals that aren't used to dealing with an outbreak, they are now working to see what facilities they can um, put in place. It might be a motel, it might be something like that, where people can go to a place where they can spend um, a week to two weeks get the care and support they need before they can then sort of go back to their home and, and everybody's kept safe. Minister, very good. Last super quick question. Why would you not put COVID positive people in MIQ and travellers in the home quarantine? Um, COVID positive people in MIQ. Um, I think the way, when we look at what's travelling, we're going to say if you want to travel to New Zealand, you're going to have to demonstrate that you're fully vaccinated. So the risk for those people is going to be much lower. Um, we're trying to avoid the situation where we're, we're, we're keeping travellers in an MIQ facility for any longer than is needed, and there'll be some travellers from some countries where they might not have to isolate at all. So we're trying to kind of calibrate all of that depending on kind of vaccination and vaccination status and risk that they pose. Very good. Minister, thanks for being so gracious with your time. Thank you. Nice to talk. All the best. Uh, Health Minister Andrew Little.